and there are churches that do this. They go around and they poll their neighborhoods, you know, what do you want in a church? And then that church turns around and says, oh, okay, you know, this is what they want. And this is, so therefore, this is what we should be. And uh, that's putting the cart before the horse, at le- to say the least. But the truth is that we shouldn't expect the world to like the church. And Jesus was pretty clear about this. And he talked about this a couple times. He warned his disciples of the suffering that they would endure for his namesake. And, they told, and he told them not to be surprised when the world hates them. The question is not whether or not the world likes us. Because if they do, if you, if you look at the testimony of Scripture and you see that the world likes us, it would tell me we must be doing something wrong. Jesus didn't say that the world might hate us. He said this in John chapter 15, verse 19. He said, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The real question is, who is this Jesus that the world supposedly likes? Who is this guy? I mean, who is, who is this that the lead singer for Green Day says about, uh, you know, he says, I'm down with J.C., he's cool. Who's J.C.? You know, Jean-Claude Van Damme? You know, I don't know. Uh, unless the singer of Green Day has seen the radical work of Jesus take place in his heart, it's not the Jesus of Scripture. So make no mistake about it, the world hated Jesus when he was in his earthly ministry, when he was doing his earthly ministry, and they hate him to this day. In the preceding verse here in John chapter 15, in in verse 18, he says this, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Now that if in that verse, that, that if doesn't indicate uncertainty. It's not like, this isn't really an if then proposition. Rather, it's as certain as what Jesus says in verse 20. He says, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So I guess maybe the question is, did did they persecute Jesus? Did they hate Jesus? Yeah, they did. And so in our study of 1 John, we've been looking at some of the things that should characterize the life of the person who loves Jesus, who belongs to Jesus. They live in the light as he is in the light. They confess their sins knowing that his blood is sufficient to cover and atone for their sins. They grow in personal awareness and hatred toward their sins. Their affections are changed. Last week we talked about the fact that the person who is in Christ will follow his commandments striving to walk as he walked. Even though we won't be sinless, we should sin less. And so this week we come to one of those commandments. John is going to point out one of the commandments that that Jesus gave us, and it deals directly with the way that legitimate Christians will feel about the church. By the way, what, what is the church? It's not these walls. It's not this building. In fact, it's nothing other than the people who are in here. The word church uh, in Greek literally means called out ones, the called out people. That's what the church is. So uh, that's 
uh, when we're talking about how Christians feel about the church, that's what we're talking about. You might not like the building. That's, that's okay. Or, or you might really like it. You know, that's okay. It doesn't mean anything. But it's how you feel about the people who are in the church. That's what we're going to be talking about today. And so, having told us in verses 3 to 6 that the one who keeps the commands of Christ, striving to walk as he walked, reveals that they're truly in Christ, John now continues by focusing on a very specific commandment that Jesus gave his disciples. And so we continue in verses 7 to 11 of 1 John chapter 2, where we read this. He says, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. So John's talking about a commandment that is both old and new, he says, which might be kind of confusing, but uh, we see that what that command is. It's the command that we love each other. This is not just referring to loving our neighbor. Of course, the greatest command is that you love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, all of your strength. And the second one is like it, that you love your neighbor the way that you love yourself. So this is not referring to the love for neighbors in the general sense. This is talking specifically about our love for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. So several times throughout the second half of his gospel narrative, uh, John tells us about Jesus giving this commandment to his disciples, and he gives it to them several times. In John chapter 13, verses 34 to 35, he gives it to them three times. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. In John chapter 15, verse 12, he says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. John chapter 15, verse 17, he says, These things I command you so that you will love each other. Now, whenever there's repetition, that means it's a pretty important point. Whenever there's repetition, that means there's a pretty important point. Whenever there's repetition... You get the point. Okay, Jesus isn't giving us room to negotiate here. This is something that's very important to him. He's not telling us that this is something that's optional. He's not saying, you know, if you feel giddy toward your brothers and sisters, go ahead and feel giddy, and if you don't, then don't. He's not saying that. He's not saying that this is optional at all. Rather, he's telling us very explicitly and repetitively that this is not something that we can be casual about. This isn't something that we can not have a passion for. It's a commandment right from the words, right from the lips of Christ. What's it called when we either fail or refuse to practice obedience to a specific commandment from God? What's that called? Sin. That's called sin. So yes, it is a sin. It's a sin to fail or to refuse to love our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. That's how serious this is. 
It's a serious thing. However, as we've seen in our study of 1 John, the Christian life is characterized by a growing awareness and hatred toward our sin. And thus, when we do sin, what do we do? We confess, we repent, and we strive by the power of the Holy Spirit to become more and more like Christ, turning away from our sin, turning our hearts back to the Lord in alignment with His will, His desires for us. And that entails not only undergoing a, a radical change of direction, but also a radical change in values, a radical change in the things that, that we desire, a radical change in the things we love or, or hate, so that we value and desire and love the same things that God loves, and we hate the things that He hates. Remember, that's what confession is. It's, it's getting into alignment with God. It's saying the same thing that God says about sin. If he says it's sin, we agree. It's sin. That's what it means to confess. We see that John says that this is both an old and a new commandment, which might seem a little bit confusing, uh, but it basically means he's telling us that in one sense it's old and in another sense it's new. So, first of all, in what sense is it old? Well, there, there's room for interpretation on this, and people have varying ideas. Uh, I suspect that John may have had the assumption that the people he's writing to here have already read his, uh, his testimony about the life and ministry of Christ. So that's what we refer to as the Gospel of John, or the Book of John, or the Gospel according to John, something similar like that. Because it's possible that when John said that this was something that was old, he meant to imply that he knew that they would have already read this commandment because they've read the Gospel according to John, that the world would know, that they, they would know uh, from having read it, that the world would know that we belong to Jesus based on our love for one another. And they would know that Jesus commanded that we love one another. John says that this is something they'd heard from the beginning. And so the question is, the beginning of what? Well, why should it not be something that a person should learn immediately upon beginning the life of a Christian? If this is something which all of God's people, all Christians, are supposed to be known by, wouldn't it make sense that this is a commandment that we should regularly be sharing with people when we share the gospel with them? Now, John Piper says a lot of things way better than I could. He says this, commenting on verse 7. He says, quote, The gospel contains not only the commandment to trust Jesus, but also the commandment, in the power of that trust, to be changed into a, living, a loving person. And living, too, I guess. This is most certainly a component of the gospel message that can very easily be overlooked. This is a part of the gospel message that can be undervalued. And we see how true that is every time we see Christians break fellowship with one another over things that could have been and should have been worked out in a peaceful manner. We see how true that is every time a church becomes divided and splits. So the, power, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, but it's powerless to, to give us the strength to work through our differences. It's powerless to negate our, our, our differences. 
I don't think so. If the gospel has power to justify, and when I say justify, I mean remove us from the penalty of sin, it also has the power to sanctify us. That is, remove us from the power of sin. Justify removes us from the penalty of sin. Sanctify reminds us, or removes us from the power of sin. So I, I think that if the gospel has power to justify, it also must have power to sanctify. And the only reason that conflict exists between anyone, Christians or non-Christians, is because of sin. It all boils down to sin. What happened immediately after Adam and Eve, uh, they, they get kicked out of the garden and they have kids, and what happens? One brother kills another brother. It's a consequence of sin. It boils down to sin. That's, that's why any conflict exists between anyone. But the reality is that the gospel is greater than our sin. The gospel is more powerful than our sin is. And this would all be good information for any newly converted Christian to be taught. So maybe that's what John meant. And yet I think that John is possibly looking back a little further than just his gospel narrative. Because we read this in the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, verse 18. God commands his people, he says this, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. I love it when he puts that on the end of a command. Because it, it, it kind of shows you, you know, that there may be some resistance here, and he's reminding them who the boss is. So what's the basis of this commandment? In other words, why should we follow this? Because he's the Lord. You see, the commandment to love others is an old one, and the reason that God wants his people to love is because love is an expression of who God essentially is. But what is this love that God commands us to demonstrate toward others. Is love merely an emotion? Is it when you get butterflies in your tummy when you look at somebody? Not biblical love. That's not what love is, biblically speaking. The command to love our enemies wouldn't make a whole lot of sense if that were the case, if it was purely emotional. Is love the validation of another person by approving of their every choice? Absolutely not. What's the best thing that you can do for an alcoholic? Approve of their addiction? Buy them a drink? Give them some lunch money and say, you know, on your way, go, go buy something that satisfies you? No. Enabling poor and sinful choices is what you do to somebody if you hate them. Love doesn't just mean that you want somebody to be happy. You know, this, this past week, uh, I walked in on, on Christina and Maddie watching a, a movie on, I think it was like on the Hallmark Channel or something like that. And, uh, and the mother was telling her daughter, love means wanting the other person to be happy. And I thought, really? Re- really? Is that really what it boils down to? What, what makes an alcoholic happy? Giving them a drink. Is that the most loving thing you can do? Absolutely not. That's the most hateful thing you can do. So what we see here is that the most common worldly definition of love is actually an expression of hatred. Because this is how the world defines love. Wanting the other person to be happy. No, it's not. No, it's not. To love someone does not mean to tolerate them or to approve of anything 
and everything that they do. It means to want what's best for them. And to be willing to act self-sacrificially to that end on the behalf of the other person. That is, in a nutshell, what love is. We read the best definition of biblical love, uh, agape love, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where we read, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. So there's your definition of agape love. But did you catch that little part there in the middle where it said that love does not rejoice at wrongdoing? Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. doesn't rejoice in somebody making sinful, bad decisions. So when the world takes their definition of love, that you just want somebody to be happy, when, and they, they see us refusing to rejoice at wrongdoing because we love, what do they think we're doing? They think we're hating. They think we're a bunch of haters when nothing could be further from the truth. If you love someone, you want what's best for them. You don't necessarily want them to just be happy. Although, yeah, of course you want them to be happy, but you want them to be happy because... They're receiving what's best for them. And what is best for them? The power of the gospel is what's best for them. To surrender their lives to Jesus and to grow in his likeness is what's best for them. And so sometimes love means enforcing discipline. A father doesn't discipline his kids because he hates them. A father disciplines his kids because he loves them. Sometimes love means saying no. Love certainly involves our emotions to an extent, but first and foremost, it's an outworking of what's going on in our hearts. It's an outworking of our will. It's a decision. And so while this old commandment to to love can be traced back to Moses, we have to understand that it also took on a whole new meaning with Jesus See, in the Old Testament, the command to to love their neighbors referred to performing uh, and participating in certain civil duties and following uh, civil regulations, such as leaving a portion of their harvest for those who had no food, or lending to the poor and needy without charging them any interest. Uh, It referred to uh, not oppressing sojourners, uh, standing up for and protecting widows and, and orphans, and so on and so forth. But the truth is that anyone... Anyone can do all of those things that I've just mentioned and more without the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. Those things are all possible to do just on our own. These things don't require a transformed heart. You don't need the power of the gospel just to be civil to somebody. That doesn't mean that these things aren't noble. They they certainly are. They're just not the type of love that Christ commands us to have toward one another under the new covenant. So how are we to love one another? Jesus tells us. The same way that Jesus loved us. How did Jesus love us? Self-sacrificially. Humbly. 
And that's why he instructed us by saying in John chapter 13, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you that you also love one another. Same way. That's what he's saying. Self-sacrificial love for the benefit of the object of that love, the other person. See, God's people should have a changed heart. And a changed heart results in changed values, changed desires, changed affections. And so we have to ask ourselves then, what does God value? What does God desire? What does God love? I'll tell you one thing he loves. He loves his people. He loves his people. And as such, the aim of Christian love is to love God's people the same way that God loves his people. Self-sacrificially, denying ourselves for the benefit and the blessing of our brothers and sisters in Christ. The love for one another that Christ commands us to have has to be more than just lip service. It's not just saying, I love you because you're my brother in Christ, and yeah, and, and really you don't. Really, you're refusing to, to have fellowship with that person. Really, you're refusing to serve that person. It's more than just lip service. It has to involve action. It has to include action. It involves the regular practice of putting the needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ before the needs that we ourselves might have. And so it involves serving. It involves serving the body of Christ in accordance with the way in which the Holy Spirit has uniquely gifted each one of us. He doesn't give us these gifts so that we can just sit on them. He expects us to use them for His glory, for His kingdom, to serve one another. But here's my question for anyone who says that they like Jesus, but they don't like the church or they don't need the church. How can you possibly... Fulfill this command if you're not regularly meeting with a group, a body of believers. How can you possibly be obedient to this? And this is why red flags go up for me anytime I talk to somebody who, who claims to be a Christian and yet maybe they either don't go to church regularly or they don't go at all. How can you love the church as Christ loved the church when you're not even meeting with them? When you, when you don't even like them. You don't even want to be around them. And so you don't regularly gather for fellowship with the people of God. There are 59 times in the New Testament in which we find a commandment that includes the words one another. 59 times. Uh, One of them is love one another. Uh, But we're also instructed to be devoted to one another, to honor or prefer one another, to instruct one another, to pray for one another, to have equal concern for one another, to serve one another in love. And the list goes on and on. I'm not actually going to read all 59. You're welcome. Uh, The list goes on and on and on. And how can anyone really claim to be obedient to this if they rarely or never gather for fellowship with a local body of fellow Christians? I'll answer that one for you. You can't. You can't. And to refuse to be obedient here is to walk on very thin ice since, as John has already told us back in verse 4, whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. 
This is supposed to be a warning. This is supposed to kind of shake you up. The gospel changes us. From being people who who really can only serve our own needs, people who really only love ourselves, into people who can and do love others. First and foremost, God. Secondly, their brothers and sisters in Christ. And I should add, by the way, that I consider this to be the number one reason that Christians should never even consider marrying an unbeliever. Because that person cannot love you the way that the Bible instructs them to love you. The gospel changes us from people who can really only love ourselves into people who can and do love others. If by the power of the Holy Spirit we are learning gradually, progressively, to love the things that God loves and to hate the things that God hates, we have to understand that God's work of regeneration will create in every single believer, every single true convert, a deep, deep love for God's people. And it seems as though the Gnostic teachers who had so badly wounded and betrayed John's audience had expressed hatred toward at least some of God's people, maybe all of God's people. Maybe they had told these people that John was, you know, John is a liar. You know, I can't believe you guys even like that guy or listen to that guy. Uh, Maybe they just said, you know, we don't like his teachings. Maybe they hated these people that he's writing to, and that's why they abandoned them. Maybe both. You know, who knows? But John assures them that the light is shining among them. In other words, they're in the light. They're doing the right thing. They do have love for one another. How does he know that? Because they love each other enough that they stuck around together even after these false Gnostic teachers abandoned them, leaving them high and dry. And so John wants them to know that if these teachers professed to hate other believers, or if they demonstrated hatred toward their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, they are still walking in darkness. They are not God's people. They are not in the light. They're walking in darkness. They're carnal. They're worldly. They're still living in a way that reflects this this attitude that there is no God to whom they will one day be held accountable. And they're still living for their own glory rather than for the glory of God. They're certainly not living in obedience to God. But we need to understand that this teaching about love didn't originate with John, even though John is, he's really the one, out of the four Gospels, uh, you know, his Gospel is really the one that, that emphasizes the importance of love. He emphasizes it the most frequently and the most straightforwardly. I mean, he's, he's really straightforward about this command that we love one another. He's very explicit. But this was also, before John taught it, where did he get it? He got it from Jesus. And Jesus taught this regularly as well. He illustrated it by telling about the separation of the sheep and the goats. That's really what this story is about. We read this in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep From the goats, and he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. 
Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Continuing in verse 41, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they'll also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or or naked or sick or in prison and, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now this is a passage that has been Most of us have heard it before, um, but it's been widely abused and misinterpreted over the course of at least the past hundred years. Uh, A lot of ministries use this as as their their foundation for what they do. They'll use it as their go-to passage for justifying uh, prison outreach ministries or international charities for the poor. And, And don't get me wrong, I am not saying that those things are bad. In fact, I would say those things are good. Those things are uh, certainly biblical, uh, ministering to the physical needs of the, the poor and destitute. But this passage, properly understood in its proper context, is not talking about just helping the poor, whether here or around the world. Now, th- that would be a case of Good idea, wrong passage. But to interpret Jesus' uh, teaching here about the the sheep and the goats as indicating that we must minister to the physical needs of the lost in order to be saved, that's a works-based salvation. A works-based idea of salvation. And thus it's entirely false. Anytime we get the idea that we have to do this in order to be saved. We have to uh, feed the poor. We have to you know, clothe the naked. We have to you know, do all, whatever. We have to, we have to get baptized. Uh, that's a works salvation. And any works salvation is entirely false. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so what is Jesus talking about here? One of the key clues for us here, one of the key uh, phrases that we should use as a clue here is my brethren or my brothers. Who does that refer to? And Jesus is not just talking about, you know, James, his half-brother, and his other half-brothers and sisters. No, when, when Jesus' mother and, and brothers came to bring him home because they heard about all this stuff that he was doing, and they thought, you know, he's obviously lost his mind. We need to go out there and, and bring him home. Uh, what, did, what did Jesus say? He said, who are my brothers and sisters? He says, whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister, and mother. That's from the same book, Matthew chapter 12, verse 50. So what is Jesus saying in this teaching of the separation of the sheep and the goats? He's teaching that loving and serving one another is is very important, to say the least. 
It's tempting when we read this to look at the differences between the sheep and the goats and to think that the difference is simply what they did or did not do. However, I, I want to push that question back just one, one step further and not ask just uh, what they did or what they didn't do, but why. Why did they do or not do what they did? It reveals a changed heart or an unchanged heart. Because by the power of the Holy Spirit and because they have a heart, the people who, who acted, who, who did minister to the least of these they did have a heart that had been transformed and, and was continuing and, and continuing to be transformed. They loved God's people because of that changed heart. And their love doesn't just result in lip service, you know, saying, uh, I love you guys, you know, have, have fun finding something to eat, have, have fun in prison, uh, you know, we'll pray for you, you know, next Sunday or uh, maybe never. It results, Jesus is saying, that this love that we have for one another results in tangible, practical action. And so who are the least of these? In our culture today, there's a lot of the least of these. There's a growing number of the least of these. It's our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who are losing their businesses because they refuse to rejoice over wrongdoing. It's our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who are facing steep, heavy fines because they refuse to participate in the sins that the culture is celebrating. And not just celebrating, but imposing on us. It's our fellow Christians who are being persecuted by a culture that's hostile toward and hates God. And which would murder God if they could. If they could murder God, they would kill Him. But since they can't, what do they do? They strike out against God's people. Psalm chapter 2 says this. It says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. In other words, let's plot against God. Let's do something to hurt God. Make no mistake about it. The world hates God. And so they will also hate his people. So who are the least of these? It's Christians in other countries who are being imprisoned because they refuse to renounce their faith in Christ. It's Christians in other countries who are being beheaded because they refuse to convert to Islam. In this text on the separation of the sheep and the goats, the least of these refers to our our brothers and sisters in Christ who are being imprisoned, who are suffering, who are being martyred. Not because this is just the hand that life has randomly dealt them, but because their love, uh, they have a love and loyalty for Christ. These are people who are suffering for His name's sake. That's the least of these. Jesus is saying that to bless And to love through actions, to love his people who are suffering for his namesake, that is to help them in any way we can, to serve them in any way that we can, is to bless and demonstrate our love for him. Conversely, to hate them, to turn our backs on them, is to hate them. And it's also to hate Christ. When Paul was confronted on the road to Damascus, who did Jesus say Paul or Saul was persecuting Christ himself. 
He says, you, why are you persecuting me? And so we have to see that Jesus is saying the same thing here. We have to see that Jesus is saying that we must treat his people the same way we would treat him. If he were the one who was right in front of us right now, how would we treat him? Whatever your answer might be, he'd say, that's the way you're supposed to be treating my people. As Denny Burke says, he's a professor, he says this, quote, In the last day, all the people who thought they could get away with mistreating Jesus' brothers and sisters are going to come face to face with reality. They're going to come face to face with their judge, and they're going to find out what justice is, and they won't be taunting or mocking. They're going to be crying out for the mountains to fall on them, to shield them from the Lamb of God come in judgment. End quote. That's a reference to Revelation chapter 6. So we see how this plays out and how we respond to the sufferings of our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's, that's one application of this, but it also must be seen to apply to our brothers and sisters in Christ who aren't uh, currently suffering, who aren't currently being persecuted. Uh, whenever you get a room full of Christians, a, a group of Christians coming together, uh, the odds of them all agreeing on absolutely every single theological doctrine or nuance known to man uh, is at least somewhat slim. Uh, you know, you've got some people who affirm uh, an old earth view of creation. You've got some people who view uh, the, the creation as being a young earth. Uh, you've got people who affirm Calvinism. Uh, you've got some people who are on the other end of the spectrum who affirm Arminianism. There are some who affirm baptism by immersion. Uh, there are some who affirm baptism by sprinkling. And the question really is, for issues like this, the question is, can you, as a Christian... Can you love and serve those who disagree with you on non-essential issues? See, there, there are certain doctrines which are essential to the Christian faith. For example, the, the deity of Christ, the fallenness of humanity, the humanity of Christ, the virgin birth, the bodily resurrection and ascension of Christ, the necessity of Christ's atonement, the necessity of faith in Christ, and so on and so forth. These are all central to Christianity. They define what Christianity is, and they are central to the gospel message. And Paul tells us that those who preach another gospel, those who deny these essential doctrines of the faith, are to be anathema, that is, cut off, accursed. And there's no room for negotiation or discussion on these issues. But there is plenty of room for conversation and discussion on the issues I mentioned previously. Young earth versus old earth, Calvinism versus Arminianism, etc. So the question is, can you love and serve those who don't agree with you about absolutely every one of these non-essential issues? Because it's easy to love people who are exactly like yourself. It's really easy. Everybody, everybody tends to gravitate toward people who are exactly like them. Sociologists will, will affirm for us, yeah, it's easy to, to, to uh, it's natural even, to like people who are like you. It's called the principle of homogeneity. In fact, when you look at most church planning books, they'll say what you want to do is you want to get a group of people where everybody is almost exactly alike. They're all in the same demographic, same age group, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's easy to love people who are exactly like yourself, but the truth is that if you only love people who are just like yourself, you really 
only love yourself. So John's telling us that one of the greatest evidences of being made a new creation in Christ Jesus is to love our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Loving God's people the same way that God loves his people. Did he just love us with words? No, he didn't just love us with words. He, lo- he loved us with actions. He loves us self-sacrificially. And so he asks us to deny ourselves for the benefit and blessing our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And just to make a quick clarification, this love that we have for other Christians doesn't result in our salvation. Rather, it results from our salvation. It's not the cause of it. It's the effect of it. It's the fruit of it. And so the person who looks at this command to love Christians, and they see themselves not quite fitting the bill, must continue, must continually look to the cross. Look to the cross where where you see the love of God fully demonstrated. It is a selfless, self-sacrificial love. It's a love that took the place of anyone who will trust in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. It's a love that bore the wrath of God against sin on the behalf of anyone who places their faith in him, denying themselves, surrendering their lives to him, trusting in his work for their salvation. Love is the greatest of Christian virtues. That's what Paul, that's another point that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It is the greatest of Christian virtues. And yet it is also what we see here, it is also one of the most fundamental, one of the most basic. Paul tells us that it's even greater. It's even greater than faith or hope. Love is the greatest. And love for God's people in particular, is one of the most beautiful and radical and immediate changes that God brings about in a person when he regenerates them, when he, when he breathes life into them. True Christians can be identified through their, through their obedience to God and their obedience to the commandments of Christ, and he has commanded us to love one another in the same way that he has loved us. And so if... We love Christ. We must also love the people whom he loved so much that he laid his life down for them. And as much as we love and serve one another, we demonstrate love for Christ. So let us learn to love as we've been loved. Self-sacrificially, blessing others. Christ wouldn't want it any other way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we thank you that you sent your only Son, Jesus Christ, to bear the wrath that we deserve for our sin and to redeem us. And we realize, Lord, we recognize that this is the greatest act of self-sacrificial love ever witnessed, ever known. And we thank you for that. We thank you for loving us the way that you do. We thank you for changing us and continuing to change us, Lord. And so we ask, Lord, that you give us this love, a greater love for your people, 
Even if, even if we already love your people, Lord, give us a greater love that the world may know that we belong to you because of our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Teach us, Lord, to be filled with love for one another that acts, love that blesses and serves one another in order that we may glorify you and love you the way that you This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today. And keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.